This isn't a forceful thing. We are bargaining with REI. This is a give and take relationship. All we want is to have a seat at the table. Coming up on Carolina Connection, employees at a major Durham store are trying to join a union. Good morning, I'm Will Christensen. And I'm Sophie Mallinson. Also this morning, former Vice President Mike Pence visited UNC's campus, sparking protests from community members. Professor Mimi Chapman wraps up her term as chair of the faculty. We take a look at the effectiveness of trigger warnings, and the recently unveiled senior mural in the student union reflects a tumultuous four years at Carolina. What do other seniors think of when they think of class of 2023? The final four, that was a pretty big deal. The old well, um, COVID, obviously. From the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to our last program of the school year. And beyond that, our last show is Seniors. Thanks for listening to our stories over the past year. Now, let's get into the news. Employees at Durham's REI store, or Recreational Equipment Incorporated, are pushing to unionize their workplace, following the lead of other REI stores around the country. Hannah Noel has the story. Employees at REI Durham filed for a union election earlier this month, becoming the first store in the Southeast to organize. They are working with the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union, or UFCW, to gain the ability to bargain with their employers about their work conditions and benefits. Alice Bennett, a retail associate at the store and one of the employees involved in the organization effort, says that this is months in the making. It started off kind of like complaining, but pretty soon it got into like the real nitty gritty and we realized that a lot of us had the same sort of problems. It was just this big moment of realizing that like I wasn't alone in it and that we were all kind of on the same page. Several stores in the retail chain have moved to organize, starting with a store in New York in March of last year. There are now stores unionizing across the country, stretching from coast to coast. Joining the movement, Bennett says that she and her coworkers have collaborated on a list of work conditions that they want to change or have a greater say in going forward. They're all really fixable things. We've got like guaranteed scheduling, guaranteed minimum hours, good faith scheduling with like more consistent days off. The employees are open to REI voluntarily recognizing them at any time, eager to express an overall love for their workplace and REI's values. People that truly hate their jobs don't start a union. They, they quit. Like, we're, we're doing this because we, we really love working here, but we just envision it being better. UNC law professor and labor and employment law expert Jeff Hirsch explains that the draw of unionizing for employees is the company's duty to bargain with them. What that means is the employer can't simply make a decision or a change unilaterally on their own. They have to talk with the union beforehand. Now, they don't have to necessarily come to an agreement. They just have to bargain in good faith to try to come to an agreement. But Hirsch says that there are a few main reasons why employers push back on unionization. Typically, a union is going to cost the company some more. Uh, and so companies, of course, don't like to spend that extra money if they don't have to. That loss of autonomy is a big part of it. Uh, companies really don't like that. There's a really strong sort of, by God, no one's going to come in here and tell me how to run my company. So that's part of it. REI is known by many for its progressive values and status as a co-op, giving its customers a sort of share in the company with added benefits and the ability to vote in the annual board of directors election. But REI is not a worker co-op, meaning that the employees are not receiving the same decision-making opportunities through the co-op that customers get from the outside. Hirsch says that it's because of this very company culture that he's not surprised that employees are pushing REI to live up to its values. You're seeing a lot of high-profile organizing attempts at companies that have a young, 
kind of activist workforce, right, intentionally. And REI is a perfect example of this. They sell themselves as being very progressive. They seek out workers who sort of share those same values. And surprise, those workers are oftentimes more willing to get involved with the union. And according to employees, they've already experienced some pushback. We've gotten a lot of the classic like union busting techniques. So like captive audience meetings, flyering in the break room, one-on-one meetings with management team. As for the company's stance, in a since-removed podcast episode, Eric Arts, the CEO of REI, discusses why he thinks REI employees should not unionize after workers at the store in Soho, New York, became the first in the chain to file for election. I believe the presence of union representation will impact our ability to communicate and work directly with our employees and resolve concerns at the speed the world is moving. And that is the core of why we don't think that introducing a union is the right thing for our employees. REI Durham employee and fellow organizer Elliot Thomas says that a union will instead give them the ability to more directly advocate for themselves. This isn't a forceful thing. We are bargaining with REI. This is a give and take relationship. All we want is to have a seat at the table. They filed for an election with the National Labor Relations Board and are currently waiting for an election date. While they're still relatively early in the unionization process, the employees are optimistic about what this process means for their future and for other stores in the region. While REI is an amazing company, just because you're good doesn't mean you can't be better. We're part of a a greater movement that is making history here, Um, and not only with REI, but in the retail world. And I, I think that's a wonderful thing to be a part of. In Durham, I'm Hannah Noel. UNC's campus was busy this week, and not just because it was the last week of classes. Former Vice President Mike Pence visited campus on Wednesday to give a speech titled Saving America from the Woke Left. He condemned abortion and critical race theory and teased a potential run for presidency. But his presence was met with protests. Lorelai Sykes reports. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Vice President Mike Pence. The Great Hall in the Student Union was aglow with red, white, and blue lights and filled with around 500 spectators. Center stage stood former Vice President Mike Pence, an unusual sight on a campus where students traditionally vote Democrat. Many campuses around the country are intolerant to conservatives and traditional views. The freedom of speech is the God-given right of every American, and we will never let the woke left take that away. But outside in the pit is where the self-proclaimed woke left was set up. Sloane Duvall, UNC Young Democrats secretary, challenges Pence's rhetoric. Is it woke to want women to have rights? Is it woke to want kids to feel safe in school? Is it woke to think books shouldn't be banned and kids can say gay? As Duvall spoke, the group held signs that advocated for LGBTQ plus rights and demanded fair and equitable health care. UNC Young Democrats president, TJ White, says his group is trying to reclaim the term woke left. We want to play on their rhetoric of woke left to show and subvert um, kind of their stereotype of, of whatever wokeness is. A photo of Pence crowned with a comically large fly on his head is front and center in a Young Democrats poster, a not-so-subtle nod to the 2020 presidential debates. In a bold font, reads, We are the woke left. Hey, hey! Ho, ho! Mike Pence has got to go! Hey, hey! Ho, ho! Mike Pence Pence's visit was funded by the Young America's Foundation, which promotes conservatism among young people. It sponsored several of Pence's speeches so far. It's the first time in years that such a well-known Republican politician has visited UNC. Pence noted that other conservative speakers have been heckled at college campuses in the past. There's been an intolerance toward traditional conservative views. 
Protesters and Pence echoed the same sentiment, hoping that people would just listen to what the other side had to say. Pence answered a reporter's question about the protesters. What's your response to some of these, these other folks that, that don't like the fact that you're here? Well, I, that's what freedom looks like, isn't it? I hope by my presence here that maybe some will come in, will listen. Pence's speech highlighted his conservative positions, like restrictive abortion policies. I couldn't be more proud to have been a small part of the administration that appointed three of the justices that sent Roe versus Wade to the ash heap of history where it belongs and gave America a new beginning for the right to life. And ending critical race theory. Wokeism has run amok in our public schools and many of our universities. They abolished our 1776 commission and authorized the teaching of critical race theory in our schools. I can tell there's diverse views on this issue. <laughs> Let me tell you mine. I think critical race theory is nothing more than state-sanctioned racism, and it should be banned from every classroom in every community, in every state. And after the mixed response to critical race theory, he proposed banning transgender students from women's sports. Participation in sports should be determined by one's gender at birth as a matter of fairness and common sense. We've got to protect women's sports. Campus Republicans were largely thankful to have a prominent Republican come and share his values. UNC sophomore Arthur Jackson took a selfie with Pence. I think it's important for uh, people of all political backgrounds to come and speak at college campuses. I think uh, intellectual diversity is something that uh, is not uh, done enough, especially at college campuses. They typically are one way or another. And the only person to disrupt the event was a person exclaiming that Pence had betrayed former President Trump. You betrayed Trump! Pence has not announced if he'll run for president in 2024, but says that he's received ample encouragement to do so, while also having his eye on supporting fellow Republican candidates. In Chapel Hill, I'm Lorelai Sykes. The past months have been tense between UNC faculty and policymakers. Faculty were upset when the Board of Trustees called for creating the School of Civic Life and Leadership, when the Board of Governors prohibited UNC from asking job applicants or prospective students about diversity, and when some state legislators proposed eliminating tenure. Mimi Chapman is chair of the faculty, but her three-year term ends in June. She's here with us today. Professor Chapman, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Now, your term as faculty chair is coming to an end after what's been a tense few months between faculty, UNC system officials, and even the legislature. Is that a fair interpretation? Yes, and I had certainly started the semester thinking it would be a quieter time. We will make a smooth transition, but it is uh, it has been extremely challenging too. It began with the resolution that the trustees put forward about the School of Civic Life and Leadership, a school, of course, about which the faculty writ large knew nothing about. So, you know, that, as you know, threw everyone into turmoil. Students had questions, faculty had questions. And then these other issues have uh, compounded that. You know, now we have a series of um, actions by the legislature now raising questions about research, also raising questions about tenure and accreditation. So there's been a lot coming at not only the UNC Chapel Hill fac faculty, but really faculty across the UNC system. 
And so given some of these tensions between what I believe you've called like academic freedom and um, shared governance, with Beth Morocco uh, acting as the chair-elect and officially taking office in July, what's she going to be faced with? Well, in some ways, that depends. I mean, some of these questions seem to be settling down in some ways. The other questions that are coming from the legislature, I think, maybe will be ongoing. Um, some of them, you know, with these bills, you, of course, never know where bills are going to go. Sometimes bills are introduced, they go nowhere. So I think that's something that's going to play out over the next two months. And it's unclear where where she'll be. I think for the time being, it remains part of my remit to keep um, putting the voice of the faculty forward. And my hope is, is that will allow her to begin with not so much controversy. You took office in the spring of 2020, the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. I want to read a statement you put out at that time. It said this, Although our university has been through challenging times before, it is hard to imagine a time in which honest dialogue, good information, and constant communication were more important than they are now. Those lines you said about honest dialogue, uh, constant communication, it seems, although in a different context, that still could hold some relevance now, does it? It does, um, and I. but I think the issues that we are grappling with now, I think there's more reluctance for that kind of co- communication to actually happen. I don't, I don't feel like we are having the kinds of transparent, thorough conversations that we were able to prompt um, as faculty governance during the pandemic. That said, <laughs> I am, you know, I'm ever hopeful for this university. Uh, this, you know, UNC Chapel Hill in particular and the UNC system has been a huge economic driver for this state for generations. All right. Well, Mimi Chapman, the outgoing chair of the UNC faculty, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me. With a constant stream of gun violence, classroom safety is top of mind for many educators. One professor is working to minimize the risk at Carolina by improving classroom security. Christian Phillips reports. Recent national events have renewed the nation's focus on school security. However, this is something that UNC professor and associate dean of instructional innovation, Kelly Hogan, has been preparing for for years. In 2015, there was what turned out to be a false alarm, luckily, but um, we thought there was potentially an armed shooter on campus and um, the shooter was potentially at the ROTC building, which was right across from my office. Hogan described how she had no idea what to do, a feeling shared by many of her students. Since then, Hogan has been determined to improve UNC's readiness for an emergency. I didn't want students wandering outside. I wanted them in the classroom so that we could lock down if we needed. And I think at that point I realized, wait a minute, I can't lock down but I didn't know that the doors didn't have locks. And it got me thinking about how much I didn't know what to do. While on that day in 2015, there was confusion on campus amongst professors and students, UNC first responders are very prepared, according to the Director of Emergency Management and Planning, Daryl Jeter. You know, obviously in the initial um, uh, response to a reported incident, our uh, public safety uh, responders, and in our case, that would be UNC police, to size up the situation to locate the threat um, and ideally uh, uh, remove the threat from campus. 
Emergency systems, such as loudspeakers and phone notifications, are also in place so that the word will quickly be spread to the campus community. We would activate that system so that the campus community would know that there is an active threat. UNC junior Aiden Blevins says that there is always more work to be done to ensure the campus community is prepared for the worst. The campus notification system we have currently doesn't do a fantastic job in terms of notifying students in, in a quick way, uh, just maintaining students' safety on campus, so I think it could be faster. Besides recommending faster notifications of threats on campus, Blevins also spoke of how little he had been prepared for the possibility of an active threat. Just from my years at Carolina, we haven't really had a conversation at all about what that would look like. So um, from my perspective, I feel like there could be more done to have a conversation on that um, about what a safety plan would look like. As for Hogan, she has made it her priority to ensure that large general purpose classrooms are safer, as well as starting to spread QR codes around campus that would help people determine what to do in a dangerous situation. So we've worked over the years to make sure there are locks in each classroom. Um, we moved towards providing a script that faculty could read on the first day of class to students and feel informed themselves. And then this year, we've moved towards making more of a checklist that's linked from a QR code on the consoles. While Hogan has been working hard on this issue, she still runs into rooms across campus that are not adequately prepared to her standards, something she says has to change to ensure everyone on campus can be as safe as possible. For this story, I inspected several classrooms to see if they were adhering to Professor Hogan's safety recommendations. While major classrooms such as Genome Sciences Room 100, with a capacity of 426, seems to be ready, many classrooms still are not. Curtis Media Center is one of the newest buildings on campus. However, there are still some classrooms within the building that don't have locks on their doors. And on the ground floor, completely glass walls provide little room for cover. Here I am years out thinking like, okay, we've, we've done the work. Um, and it turned out we didn't have a mechanism for when new classes or renovated classes came online. The issue of campus safety is one that is frequently evolving and changing. Students and surrounding members of the community should download the Carolina Ready app to ensure they get notifications and are able to report suspicious activity as quickly as possible. Reporting from Chapel Hill, I'm Christian Phillips. You're listening to Carolina Connection, UNC's student-produced newscast. I'm Will Christensen. And I'm Sophie Mallinson. College classes expose students to a variety of content, but sometimes that information can be distressing, prompting some professors to provide trigger warnings. The warnings often surround topics that could recall past trauma, like sexual assault, domestic violence, or even self-harm. But to what extent should these warnings be incorporated into the college classroom? Sofia Basuto has more. There are a variety of courses at UNC that teach heavier, more sensitive material than the average calculus class. Associate journalism professor Trevi McDonald teaches black press in U.S. history, and it covers some unpleasant events. Including things like slavery, um, including um, topics like lynching, the um, Wilmington insurrection of 1898. So I do have some content that not only describes it, but also some videos that show images. Due to the graphics shown in the class, McDonald provides trigger warnings, giving her students a heads up. And if her students are not comfortable with the content, she has a plan B, a class discussion. She does this out of respect, but hasn't had the need for a plan B yet. Before uh, we started giving trigger warnings, students maybe sometimes cringed when they saw the images, or they were shocked to see the way that these lynchings were celebrated. 
mm -hmm. uh, with the you know mob around posing for pictures and the postcards were, were sent out with these images on them, but no real strong objections. Trigger warnings are meant to warn people that they might be distressed. And if so, professor of psychology and neuroscience, Jonathan Emmerbrowitz, says that one will feel an emotional response. Whether it's um, feelings of sadness or feelings of um, anxiety, distress, um, the fight or flight, you know, response if we get reminded of something that's upsetting, you know, that can make our muscles become more tense and our heart races. Um, it might trigger feelings of anger, uh, might trigger feelings of guilt. He says that what one might feel or be triggered by is very specific to the individual. And while a good idea, the idea of trigger warnings has pros and cons. A pro is that yes, it would be nice to not have to deal with unpleasant content. However, these warnings do not help in the long run. Trigger warnings can um, lead people to kind of um, avoid unpleasant uh, feelings that really are, uh, it's probably best if we learn that these, these feelings are uncomfortable. They're, they're also something that we can learn how to manage. They're also something that are, they're not dangerous. Associate Professor of Women's Studies, Nicole M. Ellsquist, says that on the first day of class, she tells her students that she will not routinely give trigger warnings about class content. She teaches class such as Introduction to Women's Studies, Women in Science, and Psychology of Women and Gender. But when we walk through the syllabus and we walk through the schedule of all the topics we're going to cover for the semester, I point out the ones that we would normally provide trigger warnings for if, if that was what we did and said, you know, this is part of our course content. We can't, for example, cover the psychology of women and gender without talking about childhood sexual abuse. Providing trigger warnings at the frequency that sensitive topics come up in a women's studies course goes against the point of the class. Learning about hard, sensitive topics is essential, and Elsquest cannot teach a class without doing so. However, she still provides space for her students to process and progress at their own pace, reminding them of mental health resources on campus. I do always tell students, you know, you need to decide what's right for you. You're the best expert on you. If you feel like this is a topic you're not really ready to engage with, or maybe it hits so close to home that you think it's going to be difficult for you to focus and learn in the classroom, um, or it, it's just going to be too upsetting for you, you decide what's right for you. Professor Jonathan Amabramowitz says that having space to process sensitive content after being exposed is a good alternative to trigger warnings such as having a discussion or therapy counseling. And while a good idea, trigger warnings seem to go against what Emma Bromowitz knows would help people managing their emotions, like confronting difficult content. In Chapel Hill, I'm Sofia Basurdo. The semester is coming to a close, but spring sports are still going strong. Here for our last sports update is Daily Tar Heel sports editor Hunter Nelson. Hunter, thanks for joining us. Of course, well, always a pleasure. So the baseball team seems to be struggling a bit. You know, they just got swept by Boston College. And we've talked a little bit about them on the show before. But the, the team is rotating through a lot of pitchers in these games. So, like, what's going on with the bullpen and what's going on with the baseball team in general? I think when you look at the baseball team, um, as you mentioned, the pitching has been, you know, taking a little bit of a step back this season. The offense has been great. You know, you look across the lineup, you see your... Matt Corvass, you see your Hunter Stokely's, you see your Vance Honeycutts, who their OPSs are all hovering around a thousand, and they're absolutely mashing the ball. But in terms of pitching, 
I think the team has had sort of trouble finding, you know, the top three guys that they can go into those weekend series with. Um, right now, they've been going with Connor Bovert, Max Carlson, and Jake Knapp. Um, all their ERAs are, you know, pretty much at four or higher. Uh, Max Carlson's at 6.29 after a really stellar season last year. So as you mentioned a little bit earlier, that's made the team and Scott Forbes rely a bit more on the bullpen. And I think as of right now, really only two guys seem to have defined roles, so to speak, that being Matt Poston and Kevin Acey. And when you have to sort of piecemeal this pitching rotation together throughout a game, um, obviously that's going to lead to a little bit of inconsistency. And that's what we saw this past weekend. I believe they gave it 24 runs against the Eagles. So I think that's been the main thing that the team is looking to improve on as it heads down to the home stretch of the season. Obviously plenty of big games coming up against Virginia Tech, Campbell, ECU. So they have a little bit of time. Um, I know last year at this time of the year, the team was also sort of in a rut. And then we saw the run that they made nearly making it to the College World Series in Omaha. So a little bit of time to figure it all out. But I think just, yeah, with the bullpen and a number of faces being used and sort of thrown into the fire, so to speak, um, it's going to be difficult to find that consistency within the rotation. Yeah, definitely. And so moving on to women's tennis, they just broke their undefeated streak in a loss against NC State uh, in the ACC championship last Sunday. What's been the key to their success throughout the rest of the season, and what didn't exactly click in the game against State? Yeah, so actually just talking to some of the beat writers throughout the course of the season, um, Caroline Wills, who's you know tackled this women's tennis beat, um, she said that throughout the year, the depth has been the strength of the team, really just from the number one singles you know, through the doubles lineup, uh, the team has been ready to go. And um, they ran into sort of a buzzsaw against NC State in the ACC championships. Obviously, or NC State's the number four team in the country. So really no slouch there. But um, for the first time all season, UNC actually lost the doubles point in the in the ACC championships. Carson Tangulig and Fianna Crowley lost that. So I think that was the one thing that, you know, as we've seen throughout the course of the year, Brian Kalbus has said that that's the main point in winning matches is they found their success through winning the doubles. So when you weren't able to do that, that's going to lead to a little bit of difficulty. And especially against a quality opponent like the Wolfpack, um, it's tough to get those points back. But looking ahead to the team, um, the team's still searching for its first title and program history. I think they're in a good spot to do that. They're the number one team in the country. And, you know, looking at some of the teams down the line, the Texas A&Ms, the Georgias, they could be, you know, potential threats later on. Duke as well. But um, I think in a way, you know, falling in the ACC championship kind of shows that the team isn't perfect. They need to work on a couple of things and sort of stay hungry as they enter that next step of the postseason. Yeah. Got it, Hunter. Thank you. Of course, Will. Thanks once again. That was the Daily Tar Heels sports editor, Hunter Nelson. The end of the school year means senior traditions have been well underway, including the unveiling of a senior mural. The class of 2023 had all four years of college shaped by the pandemic, with this year's mural showing the resilience of the Carolina experience. The mural features scenes of a Franklin Street rush, the quad, and the old well. Its artist, senior Kate Kerr, walked Carolina Connection's Savannah Gunter through the mural. Initially, I thought, okay, what do other people think when they think of class of 2023? What do other seniors think of? Um, and I'm like, okay, the Final Four, that was a pretty big deal. The old well, um, COVID, obviously. Like, they think of a lot of different things. And then I went internal, and I was like, what do I remember? Um, I remember sitting in Davis Library with my friends late at night, studying or not studying, just staring at the big window there. I remember sitting on the quad, relaxing, listening to music, eating cholinade, just enjoying the fresh air. I remember, I don't know, I remember art. I remember dancing. I remember a lot of the colors too. 
just, I don't know, I like colors. I'm an artist, I guess, but I felt like the top part kind of encapsulates the mood of it a little bit. It's a little more similar to my normal style where it's just kind of chaotic colors and it kind of all comes together in a very interesting, strange way that's a little bit abstract, but at the end of the day, it, it works. Speaking of seniors, to wrap up today, Carolina Connections' Annie LeBaron asked UNC seniors about their favorite college memories. In my mind, I'm gone, Carolina. Hi, my name is Emma, and my favorite memory is probably hanging out with all my friends. I'm in Gillings. We have just had a lot of fun um, going out to dinner on Franklin um, and hanging out as a cohort. Yes, I'm gone to Carolina in my mind. My name is Carlos Sosa, and my favorite memory at UNC was winning first place with my Latin dance group in Virginia. My name is Bradley Rustin. My favorite memory here at Carolina was when I went to New Orleans for the Final Four last year and watched us beat Duke, so that was like the best day of my life. Hi, my name is Judy Chow, and my favorite things at Carolina as a senior were getting all the free things around campus. My name is Kellen Schroeder. My favorite memory is when we beat Duke in the Final Four and rushing Franklin Street. And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Our technical director is Charisma Daniel. I'm Sophie Mallinson. And I'm Will Christensen. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNC Connection and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. And for the last time from us seniors, thanks for listening.